In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello, hello, hello. Ryan Roxy here and welcome to another, not a, just another, this is a special one. This is a secret mm-hmm. sauce episode of In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Um, how you doing? As you know, if you are watching um, on our Facebook Live or on our YouTube Live, just hit that subscribe button right down there, wherever I'm pointing my finger or wherever our producer Vic will put the arrow at. And um, if you are in your car listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of those, pull your car over because you're going to want to watch this one. You're going to want to get in the chat and you are going to want to really listen to this one today because folks, whenever I have a guitar player on, um, you know, I get excited, but on top of that, this guitar player. Yeah. This guy is something special. It really is. Cause you know, that on in the trenches that, uh, we try to dive deep into, uh, what drives our artists and our entertainers to keep them inspired, keep them creative. But, uh, I don't really have to do that today because with nearly 40 album releases, 10 million albums sold, um, our guest today is no doubt one of the world's most well-known and successful solo guitarists. So um, all that, and he's from New York. So will you please welcome <laughs> into the trenches, Joe Satriani. Hey. Hey. Hey, how's it going? How are you so, doing today? All that, and I still said it wrong. Joe, I said Joe Satriani. I said Joe Satriani. There he is, Joe Satriani. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, that's that's okay. You know, they say it all different ways around the world. Uh, you know, it's okay. <laughs> How you doing, man? You holding up? I'm good. I am good today. You know, it's a little crazy out there. I'm in San Francisco. Uh, I looked at uh, my air quality index, and it was in the red. So. I'm staying inside today. Wow. Uh, we got lots of fires here and, uh, you know, the world's going crazy. It's a good thing we got music it's, and we can talk about guitars yeah, and it's forget true. about what's going on out there. <laughs> I always say that the uh, that we, we never mention the C word inside this little dome that we have because uh, all that stuff is out there. But, you know, no doubt. Yeah. I grew up from the Bay Area. Uh, you've been in the Bay Area since uh, the late 70s. So you've That's right, yeah. pretty much stayed out there and, and, and made a life, made a career, uh, built yeah. an empire. And we're going to go <laughs> through all of that stuff because the first part of the uh, podcast is always, you know, you got to go back to go forward. And um, I just like to give a little bit of history about uh, who you are, because I know there's a lot of people already that know your history, but might not know the little intricate details. And I have a, a, I have a little inside uh, information because being again, that <laughs> I grew up in, in the Bay Area, I knew you from, uh, from your earlier bands. But even before that, yeah. like, you know, uh, legend, legend has it that uh, you started playing guitar. Uh, you initially into sports. That's what you were into. Like, were you a football guy or baseball yeah, guy? Yeah, you know, I wasn't very good at any of it. I was just enthusiastic. I was just a you know, little kid uh, growing up on Long Island. So I went to a public high school called Carl Place High School. And I did, you know, wrestling, the fitness team. There used to be a fitness team back then. This is ancient history. But <laughs> I, I think my high That's school- That's all gone out the door in America now, fitness yeah. teams. <laughs> but I, I think, uh, I mean, they were, uh, it was national and we won four years in a row. So it was a thing, you know, if you were able-bodied to try to, to get on the fitness team. So uh, my brother and, and myself were both on the team. Uh, we played baseball. We were on the baseball team, on the football team. Uh, but, you know, when you're around 14 years old, that's when kids who are going to be big start getting big. 
and kids like me who were born <laughs> to play guitar, <laughs> it starts to be obvious, you know, yeah. and it's get, it was harder to play against your, your fellow 14 year olds. Cause they, some of them were just huge. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was into to, to that, but I was, um, I was, you know, I started playing drums when I was nine. So I was already thinking of subverting the norm, uh, and, uh, and and trying to create my own reality as a musician. But it didn't click in until the tragedy of Jimi Hendrix dying. And I did find out as I was heading out to practice. And uh, I just, I turned around. I went to the coach's office and said, I'm quitting. Uh, Jimi Hendrix has died. I'm going to be a guitar player. So the legend and, um, is true. That's amazing to hear that because yeah. I, I, I'm I'm a little bit like you. I, I started off well. My my first instrument was the trumpet because my father played the trumpet, and then I, I realized very quickly that there wasn't a career in uh, rock star trumpism. Oh wait, hey, whoa, <laughs> whoa! Uh, being a trumpet player as a, as a rock star, and then I switched to huh. drums. I had a, a five piece Tama kit and then it was like the guitar that was always laying on the couch that I just kind of you know when uh, I finally put everything down I said you know what that's the path because the guitar is the is the right path for me and again like you probably at on my tippy toes I'm five eight I think and that's full grown still to this day <laughs> and now I'm shrinking <laughs> <laughs> as we, as I get right. old, why, do, why do we shrink as we get older as guitar players damn it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Who knows? But hey, you know what? I want to point out Michael Anthony, uh, trumpet player as well. And I got to say, you guys who learn how to play horn can can conceptualize music in your head better than those of us who start on an instrument where you can look at it. You know, it's different. Perhaps, you're a piano yeah. player. You're used to the left to right. You're a guitar player, a little convoluted, but still we can look at the shapes. But a horn player, it's really all in your brain, isn't it? Because these fingerings are, you know. And, and there's, they're, they're there's not of, that many of them. That's the cool thing is that, you know, with the trumpet, yeah. there's not that. There's a lot of other grace notes, especially saxophone always confused me. My grandfather played saxophone and uh, uh, he played the melody sax and stuff. Because jazz is has been part of your upbringing like once you decided to take guitar seriously uh jazz music was kind of like the sort of uh focus and i i mean there was some amazing jazz players you had billy bauer that 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 you studied with Mm. and and lenny lenny tristano is that did i say that? that's right right, yeah okay yeah we say tristano on long island (laughs) (laughs) tristano so yeah yeah well you know i i grew up youngest of five kids so i watched uh from the side of the room you know as my older sisters my older brother had the most fun late 50s all the way through the 60s and as they started to leave the house in the late 60s early 70s i would inherit all their records and i that just became my foundation along with my parents who were jazz age kids all the beautiful jazz music that they had collected and played throughout my entire childhood in the house even when they had lots of parties it was all jazz and so yeah i heard west montgomery and coltrane and miles davis and all the way up to the creek taylor records you know uh, stanley turrentine you know, uh, no one ever talks then, about that. No one ever talks about, you know, being the youngest of a big family. They always talk about how um, 
when they're talking about being the youngest of the family, they talk about that uh, they get the, the, the hand-me-down clothes, but they don't talk about the the, the, <laughs> the pros of it, which you get all the hand-me-down yeah. records, right? You get yes. all the good oh. stuff. That's a good point to make, man. So everyone that's in the chat that's the youngest of any family, you got all the good records. How about that? <laughs> yeah, and it was, phys- you know, it was physical back then. It was literally, oh you know, stacks of scratch right. 45s, but I loved them. I loved all the Beatles and the Stones, Dave Clark 5, all the Motown, James Brown, all of it. Uh, it, it it's, you know, I, I just have great memories of sitting there with a portable record player in the corner and just playing that stuff over and over again. Thinking Maybe headphones is- like this, you know, like big old seventies headphones, <laughs> I call them, you know, yes, pioneer, yes. <laughs> pioneer headphones, you know, but the cool thing is I have a 15 year old daughter and, and what her biggest uh, wish was for Christmas last year was it was a vinyl player. So I, I love that wow. it's coming back. I mean, have you been able to re-release a lot of your albums on vinyl lately? Yes, as a matter of fact, I'm glad you said that because I just happen to have this shameless plug. This I love it. That's my new. shameless plug. Look at that. Who is, is that? Is that, that shape shifting? Is that the newest one that came out in 2020? Okay, there you yes, go. Yes, it came out April April 10th. What a what a lucky time to release a record. But uh, <laughs> people need music. You know what I mean? We're musicians. It's our job to make music for people. So I, I you know, along with the guys at Sony, we just said no. This is our job. Uh, we're going to make music and we're going to release it. So yeah, we've just been moving forward, uh, although we've been stuck in our little respective homes and rooms doing yeah. it. But um, yeah, we, we you know, uh, Legacy Sony has been really wonderful in releasing almost all of my catalog on vinyl. And we usually take Record Store Day or something like that to sort of usher in the new one that we're putting out. And they, they find uh, great pressing plants and we release the really fat, beautiful sounding vinyl so well i'm going to talk um, about shapeshifter i'm going to talk about shapeshifter a little bit and especially the newest one that you have is which is the the stripped x3 which actually has a shapeshifter on it as well as part of the backing tracks we'll talk a little bit about that but i mean a little bit of controversy is is shapeshifter your Mm. 17th or 18th studio album because I don't know, but I, I first the first controversy is that when I chose this script, I realized people would not realize that it actually says shape shifting. And what have you got? Not oh, shape shifter. Oh, of course, there it is. I'm the one. I, I'm yes. stand guilty. Shape shifting. No, you, you, you can't imagine how one. many times I've okay. had had to correct, you know, correct people on that. We should have done it in block letters, right? No, I, <laughs> but, I, I, uh, I have it in big font on my notes right here. It says shape shifting, and I'm still going shape shifter. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> Maybe I'm just thinking of an electroharmonix phase shifter. Do you remember oh, that? Oh, yes, I know. I know. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Guitar players, everything is funneled through our pedal oh, memory. That, that was my first pedal that I got. That was my first sort of cool effect, uh, like one that I got was a small stone phase shifter. I think they had two of them. Oh, they had a, they maybe different, they had small stone and then they had, uh, maybe it was, it came along with the big muff. It was, there was a, yeah. Electro Harmonix made a bunch of stuff back in those days and they were all yeah. kind of seventies and kind of cool like that. <laughs> my first one was the, the big muff. And yep. I think, yeah, I think that my second pedal may have been that big maestro face shifter, you know, the black one with the three buttons on. Ah, ah. 
sounded beautiful. Noisy is all hell. They were always noisy. Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can still hear it. The little Big Muff. That was the <laughs> that was the one I had because the Big Muff. Oh, okay. went, and then then they came up with a smaller version called the Little Big Muff. Imagine that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, I'm I'm impressed with your business acumen since since the beginning because. You know, you're you're studying school, you're studying music with these jazz teachers, but then you start teaching guitar right away. You're going yeah. you're going to school at uh, uh, I think it, what was this college at five points five towns college was that it? Well, I started teaching when I was still in high school, so uh, that would be Car Place High School. Um, I was taking lessons, uh, music theory lessons, actually classes from a guy named Bill Westcott, a young Juilliard graduate who was just really brilliant. And I went through uh, Bill's classes as well as Steve I, who was uh, about three years younger than me. Yeah, you guys went to the same us. high school. I, I I didn't know that yeah. going through this research that you guys actually yeah. went to the same high school. And did you yeah, end up, yeah. did you end up <laughs> teaching him some stuff? Obviously, later on. Yeah. You're, you, I mean, you know your whole catalog of, of musicians that you have groomed and the, the ones that you have actually uh, been the, your, your protégés, if you will, you've been their mentor. The list is crazy. I mean, I'll go on into that for a little bit, but I'm, I'm impressed that, you know, you're, you're learning from the jazz guys, but then you're passing it on to everyone that's up and coming and all these. Yeah. It was a, a beautiful time to learn uh, music uh, for, for two funny reasons that seemed to be opposing. One was I had these, you know, uh, this opportunity in this public high school to get a world class university music education from this Juilliard graduate who was stuck in this little public school in the middle of Long Island and only had three students in his class. So the attention I got, especially in in. Uh, my last year of high school, where I graduated a half year early, so I took two of every class every day for for six months and graduated early. Um, Were but, you seventeen uh, when you graduated? About I guess, probably yeah. it had to yeah. have been about seventeen because that's that's the yeah. age I was because I did like when I hear your story, I'm like going, well, damn, if I would have had everything except the actual talent uh, that you had at playing guitar at that age, everything <laughs> we're we're on the same pace. But, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I benefited from the funniest set of circumstances. Uh, I did take about, I think, three lessons from Billy Bauer, and that happened only because uh, my mother was talking to somebody. Uh, and just mentioned that her youngest kid was looking for guitar lessons and somebody knew somebody. Um, I wound up uh, when I graduate. Well, first of all, so during that period where I'm just playing Black Sabbath and Zeppelin in my high school that bands. That was me, bro, Jumping uh, Jack Flash and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was great, great fun. Uh, a few years younger than me uh, is Steve Vai. So we've known each other since we were kids. And the singer in my band had a younger brother who was the singer in Steve's band. So there was this funny little connection between the two of us. I taught Steve for about two and a half, three years uh, while I was in high school. Uh, when I, I spent a, almost one semester at Five Towns College, did not get along with the staff at that school and then just went out on the road. I was in a disco band at the time. But in the interim between that that stage of being uh, at Five Towns and then going out on the road. I did take a few months of le lessons from Lenny Tristano, you know, the father of cool jazz, one of the, the greatest musical figures of the last century. Uh, and he did sort of reorient myself uh, uh, about how to be a musician, how to practice, 
how to face up to what you think you know and what you do know and what you don't know, how to approach playing uh, and music as a lifelong quest, you know. In other words, um, he was a little bit strict as well. Or he had uh, crazy strict. <laughs> I swear I had a couple of lessons that were no longer than 45 seconds because if you made a mistake, he would get up, he'd walk over to his Braille accounting book and just sit there. And that meant you had to go and lay down the money and leave. <laughs> and you'd leave and there would be like a walk of shame because you'd walk out of the door and in the hallway, there'd be six other students waiting there and they'd look at you like, ah, don't worry about it. You know, happens to all of us. Did that carry then, on to your students? Did, did, would you, would, if I was to interview any of your other students, and like I say, I will mention those names in just a little bit, folks, because the list <laughs> okay. is very impressive. Would they think you were a strict student or would they think you were kind of? Well, some uh, of them. Right. Yeah. I mean, if, if, uh, you know, like I had students who came in and, and they'd say, I want to be great. I, I want to be the greatest I can be. I want to be the greatest guitar player. I want to be famous, that kind of stuff. Then I'd say, okay, uh, I'm just going to turn the screws. Uh, I, you know, I did teach eight-year-old kids who would come in with action figures and put them on the amp, you know? So of course I wouldn't <laughs> lean on them. I, I taught, you know, doctors, lawyers, race car drivers, you name it, construction workers who would come in, you know, dirty with, with uh, injured hands after a hard day work. And they, you know, and they just want to, play some Creedence Clearwater. So I'm not going to lean on them. They Were just, you tough on Steve you know, Vai though? But because you, he, you saw that, you saw that. It was impossible. It was, a, he was so good. Wow. Every time that I would teach him something, he'd come back and he'd have it down. And I'd be looking at him thinking, you know, next week he'll do that better than me. I'm guaranteed, you know? <laughs> so one of those with guys. Steve, it was like I was I was just barely ahead of him. I mean, I think I'd only been playing about a year. Yeah, maybe a year before him. So right. it wasn't like I, I was uh, an, an advanced player. I was just a little bit ahead. Right. And, and you guys uh, were we, just we, pushing each other up, 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 I think. Yeah, he was so much fun because he's just the natural musician and he's really driven. That's always the case, you know, if the student... Like you take Kirk Hammett, he came already. He could play great. He really right. was a good musician. Naturally could pick up a guitar, make music and put a smile on people's faces. Right. That's our job. Right. Kurt is only, the, he, only the guitarist in Metallica folks there. In case, <laughs> in case of those of you that just, you know, you saw Joe just say the name and slide, slide off his tongue, but no, it's the, it's the guitarist of Metallica. And here he is teaching him and that going up. He, to that you know, he worked. He worked really hard. He showed up as much as he could. Uh, sometimes his mom would come uh, to pay for the lessons. I mean, this is, you know, this is real neighborhood stuff. You know what I mean? Love it. <laughs> and, Love but it. He, he worked really hard. And the thing that really helped, besides his obvious talent, uh, was that he knew what he wanted. And so he could express to me this, you know, Joe, this is what I like. I like these players. How do I do that? What's the, what's the, what are they doing? What, what's, what are the ingredients? And that, that's really my job is to provide the ingredients and not to affect the student style. I don't want them to play like me at the time. As you mentioned, I, I, uh, I was in the square. So uh, it was a completely different style uh, from all my students. Most of my students were young and they were about to change the world with thrash metal and, and that whole scene coming out of the Bay of area. You can think of. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so by the time it, it was very exciting. 
So by the time you're teaching Kurt, you had already moved from the East Coast. You moved to California. And this is basically late 70s, um, early 80s that you start teaching. And uh, you decide to move to Berkeley, Berkeley, California. For those of you that don't know, Berkeley Berkeley is a very esoteric place. It's like I used to go as a kid. (laughs) I grew up in a little bit more East Bay. I grew up in Pleasanton, right? But uh, I would go to Berkeley because I'd go to Rasputin's Records because it was the cool. It was a a place that had (laughs) all the bootleg records. I remember getting my cheap trick bootlegs there because they were my Beatles back at that point. And um, Berkeley is a very... For lack of a better term, back in those days, it's 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 very uh, progressive. It's very almost hippie-ish a little bit, and um, yeah. you fit right in with that, right? I mean, because even to the, <laughs> even to this day, you still have a very cool, mellow type of Zen vibe. I feel. <laughs> I, well, I I wound up there by accident. Really, it's because my uh, my two oldest uh, sisters had uh landed there uh they were both professional artists and so they reported back to uh their younger brother that berkeley california was a crazy place and you could just come and do whatever you want and i think a lot of uh us from new york were really trying to figure out how to escape right yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, i got you um and and I already, you know, I'd been on tour with a disco band. I'd seen enough of the East Coast as a young kid. I've been working in bars since I was 14, you know. And so I felt like I need a vacation from the East Coast. And so I go to Berkeley. And of course, the first time you go to California, if you're from the East Coast, it's got, it's the most exotic experience ever. <laughs> and the sense of freedom and how you feel like you can really spread your wings. It's really intoxicating. Uh, I spent about six months in Japan. I came back and I finally settled uh, around 77. I thought, I'm just going to stay here in Berkeley. And I was there for about 12 years before uh, coming here to the city right across the bridge. Right. Um, but had a wonderful time. You know, I had an apartment right across the street from this little guitar store uh, called Secondhand Guitars, owned by a guy named Jim Larson. And that you wasn't know, that far from Rasputin's, I, I, if I remember, if I remember correctly, yes, yeah. it was pretty close, right? It, it was, yeah. Small town, you know, Berkeley. That, Not that, that far area from Berkeley Keystone, there. Berkeley, or as well. Yeah, the Keystone yeah, with maybe the- about. With the pole, you with know the pole. pole well, right? That's what I said. That was you not can play a slide guitar on the. That I've was done not that a weird times. gesture, folks. For those of you watching on the uh, <laughs> our, on our YouTube channel, it's it, everybody that does Keystone Berkeley does that thing because it had a pole in the middle of the stage, and yes, yeah. uh, I saw Motley Crue there. I think on the first. They're, they're, they're Too Fast for Love Tour. It was 1982 or something like that. Two, 82 or 83. It's right before I split and moved down to Los Angeles and decided to go uh-huh. for my thing. But Keystone, <laughs> uh, Keystone, Palo, Keystone Berkeley, Keystone Palo Alto, and The Stones. Those were all uh, right. clubs. And, and we'll talk about that because at that time, yeah, you're touring in this, or not touring, but you're, you formed this band called The Squares. And for those of That's you right. folks that are, are um, not familiar with The Squares, the squares, I I have a personal personal love for because my band at that there time, very oh my god, you have that out, you have that CD as well. I was so yeah, happy yeah. to find <laughs> that you guys released the album because I've been looking for that those songs for years on the dark web. I've I've literally gone down there, folks. The squares were the perfect blend between the police and Van Halen and and. 
perhaps the Beatles or Isley Brothers, they, they all sang. They sang great. It was a, it was power pop, but heavy pop songs. All I can tell you is go check it out because I know that you... Um, wow, look at that. <laughs> I know that you uh, played with, with Jeff Campanelli. Campitelli and another Campitelli Campitelli another former uh, another uh, uh, Italian uh, that, that I'm sure you worked <laughs> yes. with on, on other records I think you worked with them <laughs> on some of your solo records and you had Andy Milton oh, yeah. on the vocals as well in bass and I remember this yes. power trio folks because I opened up for them at a, a club in Danville called the stage many a time and that's when I studied Joe's rig before <laughs> you know Joe didn't know I was studying his rig but he was the one that turned me on to the two Marshall half stacks and an Echoplex and a, I think a Boss CE1 course that drove the two together. And that was your, yeah. and you had a Strat, like a kind of a cream Strat, I think with a, I don't even remember that. It was a, I had a black one and a red one. Yeah. They were put together from parts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's the black one. I still have that one. I love it. That one's still... Yeah. And then you had, and then, then you guys in the squares during, at least in those days, you would all wear trench coats. That was that. Is it, am, am, am I, am I close? Did you? Maybe, no, maybe I mean, that was gigs? probably just a phase. Maybe it was a phase. I think Andy looked pretty good in a, you know, Andy was like six one. So he looked good in a big long coat. Well, uh, you know, what's funny is I, you mentioned that I have the squares, one of the squares, Marshall heads that was stolen from our, you know, living in Berkeley was crazy. It was a rough town in many ways. And we rehearsed in, in a, in a pretty bad part of town. And one, one night, all of our gear got stolen. That had right there, uh, of, of a friend of mine. Um, he was a fan, Greg Montgomery. He lives up in, I think in Eugene, Oregon. This goes back a couple of years. Um, uh, he meets me at a meet and greet and he says, I think I have your Marshall. And he shows me all it. these pictures of this hundred watt head. And it's got remnants of orange paint all over it. He tells me this story about he was he was a fan of my rig uh, as you described it yep. and one day he he's uh he works in the it or something like that he's talking to a friend he wants to put together a rig that's just like you know joe's from from the old days and the guy says oh i have this head but it's orange so he he buys the head from the guy and he says i got to get rid of the orange paint he starts to strip it and he sees the square stencil Get out on it. And, <laughs> oh, and that's it, then amazing. He, he compares the plexi, the cracked plexi in the front, right. to all the pictures he took of us playing at the Keystone Berkeley, Berkeley Square, Keystone Palo Alto, you yeah, know. Yeah. And and it's the one. And the guy gives it to me. He finally, that's after so all sweet. these years, he gives it back to me. And uh, and I've been using it on on the albums ever since. Oh, this <laughs> you're showing that <laughs> illustration. You know, it's my son's birthday today. Zizi Satriani turns 28 today. Happy so birthday, happy birthday, Zizi. Zizi. Hey, there you go. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's that's the head. Uh, and I'm so happy that I still have it. That's, that's so one cool. of the things I still have. I also the remember day. the fact you turned because you were one of those bands that I, I looked up to. So I, I would re I remember that you had those half stacks in Anvil Road cases. Because that was right. because that was an important thing, you know, that you have an anvil road case for, so, for because you you wanted to make your Marshall amp heavier. If you wanted to turn a one hundred pound amp into a two hundred pound amp, just get an anvil road case for it. That was perfect. Oh <laughs> try, God! Try fitting that in the back of a Ford Courier. I did that for many for many years. <laughs> I I made the mistake of being the guy in the band 
that owned the van. And so oh. I had to show up first and I got home last. That's usually gig. the drummer. You're, that's usually the drummer. <laughs> That's funny. So Northern Cal, you're growing up in Northern Cal. You get to play um, the squares. It kind of ran its course. I, I I understand that. I mean, I mm. was such a huge fan. I thought it was, again, another smart business decision. You had decided to start this band with your brother-in-law. He would be the manager. He would sort of yeah. write the lyrics and then you'd form this band and you had success. Maybe maybe two, two before your time or, or whatever, but it didn't pan out as much as you thought it would. Yeah. So, but you still mm -hmm. get asked by the Greg Ken band at that point to, yeah, to yeah. play for them which is which is another great bay area band folks if you don't uh if you're not familiar with northern cal rock these are all straight ahead great rock and roll pop hooky songs and how would your experience like with greg ken well you know we had opened for them quite a bit so we were lucky uh the squares you know we we were just not successful you know and we tried the hardest we rehearsed like crazy but you know, my guess is the songs weren't right for the time and we weren't as good as our, uh, our comrades, you know, our competitors. I thought you uh, were, I mean, who, who were your great. competitors back then? I mean, because in the Bay area, do you remember bands like, um, were you playing with bands like Bonnie Hayes and the wild combo? Were you playing with, yeah. were you, okay. Benny and the jets. Yeah. Is that another one that might've yes. been yes. a great band? The Lloyds, <laughs> uh, the Lloyds, uh, all of them. Uh, Eric and, Martin but band. the thing is, is that, you know, musicians, we compete with each other all the way to the top because when you, you know, uh, here's a funny thing. So John Carter, who was Sammy's manager before his uh, untimely passing, he was one of the chicken foot managers. He was also uh, A&R at Capitol and he turned the squares down many times. We, we often laughed about that as we became very close friends later in life. Um, but, uh, you know, from his perspective, when he goes to see a brand new band, that band is competing against whoever is number one, you know? So in, in effect, all of us, you know, you and me included in our respective bands back in the early eighties, we were competing with the police and Van Halen and Ozzy True. and all yeah. of them. Yeah. And, and so the competition thing really doesn't matter. It's just, you, you know, you just didn't win. And so, that was the end of that. Now, uh, uh, I think Greg Ken did win. They were a platinum-selling uh, band. They had a really couple of really successful singles, and uh, they were a crazy band, that's for sure. I turned them down two years prior um, when they had to get rid of their uh, one of their guitar players. I forget who who was bailing. Right. Um, but here's the, the here's the drama around this whole thing is. I decided to, using a credit card that got mailed to me just anonymously uh, from a bank in, I think, North Carolina or something like that, to, to max out the credit. I would imagine Wilmington, Delaware. To, <laughs> so, whatever. They all come from anyway, there, right? Anyway, I, I, didn't, I didn't even question it. I just went to Hyde Street and I said, I'll prepay everybody. So what's the deal? You know, Can I get 50% off on all the studio time and everything? I got my first full-length album, Not of This Earth, Not of this Earth recorded I was just about to go to manufacturing, release it on my own label, Rubina Records. And Steve, I said, please let me send it to this nutcase, Cliff Coltrary at Relativity Records, because he's going to put out Flexible. And if he's going to sign me with Flexible, he definitely would sign you for Not of This Earth. So it did work out. But the problem was that before that happened, 
I was in debt for that five grand that I really couldn't come up with at the time. And that week when it was going to go to a collection agency, I got a call from Steve and Greg from the Great Kin Band saying, please say yes this time. We're desperate. Come down to the studio. Help us finish the album. And so, of course, I said yes. You need an advance of five grand. (laughs) (laughs) They, They... in three hours, all my problems were solved. Oh. I was in a band. I, I had employment for a year. Perfect. They paid off all the problems that I had dealing with the, the, the recording of Not of This Earth. And suddenly I realized, wow, this is going to work out. And I was able to hold on long enough to get Not of This Earth uh, released about a year later on Relativity Records. And, um, and about a month later, uh, I signed on to do the next series of records, the first of which was going to be surfing with the aliens. So it was fortuitous, but it was, it came out a very, a very tumultuous time, a very difficult time where I didn't really know where, you know, if I was going to get a break or where the next dollar was going to come from. Uh, so very exciting time. Would you say, <laughs> really that you, would you say your career was in jeopardy? See, that's a great Greg Ken joke, all right? You got to go real deep inside and be a Greg Ken fan to actually appreciate that, folks. Honestly, I didn't write that stuff. You can't write that stuff. Um, We're here with Joe Satriani. Um, You know, I I would like to say, you know, band member, but you are the guitar, you're a solo guitarist, but you've also been in so many big bands. We've talked about, you know, I, I trust me. I'm so happy that the squares record is out right now, but the ones that the people perhaps in the chat right now, and you're going to check out the squares right there in the chat, aren't you? But, uh, the thing is you've also played with, uh, Greg Ken, and I'm looking at, uh, Mick Jagger's first solo record as well. Yeah. So things are well, looking the first on tour. The, yeah, his, the, the first tour. His, and 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 you've yeah. and then all of a sudden you're associated with a ton of great bands and then obviously you're putting out your solo stuff uh all in between making this huge name for yourself, but you've been associated with huge bands as well because Chickenfoot who you just mentioned uh with Sammy Hagar. You just said Sammy, but folks, that's Sammy Hagar. Um Chickenfoot goes on to make two records um, and uh, they have superstars in it. Super, you got Sammy Hagar, you got Michael Anthony, Chad mm-hmm. Smith on the first album. I believe that Kenny Aronoff has been your drummer since. Um, perhaps maybe there's a, maybe a reunion in the works at one point. Can we get it? You an never know. You, you never, never know. know. Never say never. Right? It's, you know, it's funny. You, you mentioned, you know, you're jogging my memory about, you know, just the, that moment when I got that call from uh, Greg Cannon. And that was, I was teaching at the time at Secondhand Guitars. I, I remember Jim Larson saying, hey, the guys from, you know, uh, Greg's on the phone, you know, Greg came in. <laughs> and, uh, and back then, I never would have thought that I would have been, you know, spending a year playing with Mick Jagger, uh, six months uh, on tour with Deep Purple. I, certainly, I never thought I'd be, you know, in a band with Chad Smith, Michael Anthony, and Sammy Hagar, uh, and these things—it's so odd how that how they happen. Uh, but you, you know, it's like what I told a lot of my students at the time, uh, who had questions about how do you become famous. You know, they're always how do I become famous? <laughs> what's that? And what I is that secret? Like, what is that special sauce that gets you to that <laughs> point? Right. That's, well, I, I always say I have good news and bad news. I said the bad news is is there's no reward for good behavior. 
So I said, you could practice like crazy and, you know, get a good haircut and a good lawyer and just that, you know, no one knocks at the door and that's all there is to it. So you better love what you do because that's, that's the payoff, but there's no reward really. Uh, but the other thing I'd say is you have to prepare for good luck because you just, you have no idea how it's going to arrive. It just might arrive in the weirdest package that you could have never imagined. But if you're not ready to show what you got, then that opportunity passes by in a split second. So, uh, you know, I, that call from Greg Kin was funny. I just said yes before I even knew what it meant. And, I, and I drove across town, it, very, not very far to go to Fantasy Studios back then, yep. down in the flats of Berkeley. I walk in there, I plug in, I start tuning. I'm playing over a song I never heard before. You get to the end of it and they say, we got it, Joe. That's great. Let's go to another song. And I realized, wow, this is how it might happen. I'm going to be recording on an album and they're just taking first takes. They're not even letting me listen to the material and like plan or take up <laughs> the appropriate pedal. They're just like winging it. But, but I, <laughs> I, I think it goes back to your songs. preparation, man, your preparation that you learned and you're, you're already prepared. So what you think might be the first take, they're thinking like, shit, this is, this is the vibe already because you've already in your mind prepared that. And it goes back to ear training in high school, Bill Westcott training my ear and, you know, teaching me relative pitch and telling me, look, you know, you may at 21, it may turn out you don't have fingers of a virtuoso, but your brain can keep going. Your musical brain, the powerful musician inside of you can keep going into old age. So you just work that. And, and he was right, you know, because you don't know what's going to happen to you physically when you're a young person, but uh, you can really bet on your musical mind to carry you through uh, and any physical impediment you might come up against. When you're at that music store teaching those students, and I and, and now I'm looking forward to rewinding this podcast for myself just so I can get some of those last nuggets of information, and all of you should in the <laughs> chat as well. But th this is sort of information, uh, golden type of stuff that you're telling these names that you're teaching. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, at this point, are you teaching the likes? Uh, we already talked about uh, Kirk Hammett from, from Metallica, but uh, Dave Bryson mm -hmm. of Counting Crows, right? Uh, yeah. Kevin Kevin Katagong from, from Third Eye Blind, Larry LaDonde of yeah. Primus. Um, you have yeah. Alex from Testament. I mean, I, these, these, these yeah. names are just like, they're huge bands that you're able to not just mentor, but then you move on and show as example of like what you end up doing. And at the end of the day, you, <laughs> there's a good picture. That's our Vic, our producer always comes up with some really great photos. He, he combs the internet. He, go, he goes on the dark web sometimes and to, to check out some of these things. But um, yeah, I mean, um, it's incredible that you've been able to have this business mindset of being a teacher and a mentor, but also keeping your eye on your career as well. And it, it all comes back and it all fast forwards to you uh, with your association with my boss, Alice Cooper. You end up, you yeah. and Steve Vai end up trading solos on like, uh, uh, Hey Stupid, Feed My Frankenstein. How did that whole thing come together and how yeah. was your experience with Alice? Oh, uh, well, for, see that picture there? That is a real 
wonderful spinal tap moment because my guitar actually never made a sound on that particular <laughs> live show. <laughs> it was it was a moment of humility where you get invited out for an encore and the amp doesn't work. And no matter what all the techs did, they couldn't get the amp oh, to work. God. And Alice had to start the song. You know, I mean, there's oh, yeah. thousands of people waiting for the song. Um, but besides that, um, I have to tell you that when I was in high school, um, you know, I was suspended and thrown out for a week because I did an impersonation of Alice Cooper, shirtless, covered in blood, and my friend's <laughs> boa snake. And I terrorized... Uh, the, the theater full of younger kids uh, just in an effort to try to get my friend elected president. I mean, we were completely unelectable as <laughs> did you kids. play the, did you play but, the song elected by Alice Cooper? <laughs> we, I think it was, uh, I think it, we, he had just come out with that cause he was in town playing at the long Island Coliseum that week. So when I appeared on stage and they're playing Alice Cooper and there I am, a lot of people thought it was Alice Cooper for a second because oh, <laughs> from far away, my really long, you know, mid seventies hair and right. I had the snake and everything. Uh, but uh, yeah, explaining that to my parents was difficult. Uh, but I, I loved Alice Cooper. I used to see him. I saw him at the Long Island Coliseum. I had a, a great poster of him hanging himself in my bedroom, which, you know, caused my family much grief because they were always worrying about me. But um, it's just, I just Alice. It's Alice. Just Alice. It's just Alice. <laughs> he, he always had amazing guitar players in his band. It, the music, it was always interesting. And I always got the joke. Uh, and so um, I've always been a really big fan. And uh, when I got connected with him through Bob Pfeiffer, who I think had signed him to Hollywood Records. Yes. I think that was the connection. Or was it Epic? Was it Hollywood? It was Epic, Epic at the Maybe time because he, he signed Hollywood. He had Hollywood Records like basically when I, right before, or right during the time oh. I was with Alice when I joined in 96. So it had to have been Epic before because Bob Pfeiffer has been around. Yeah. Bob, Bob Pfeiffer, folks, has been around longer than uh, rock and roll, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, he got us connected and, and I, I had the this distinct pleasure of playing on four or five tracks or six or something on the Hey Stupid record. Yep. Um, it was just, for me, it was so important just to make that connection uh, to, to, to work with him. And, uh, and you know him, he's just an amazing human Absolutely. being, a great yep. artist and we're lucky to have him. And it's so cool that he's still, giving us, you know, well, performance and music. I, and I art. thank you, Joe. I thank you, Joe, because I've studied your, your music for years off those albums. And I've always tried to make it my own after getting frustrated, trying to learn your parts verbatim <laughs> <laughs> because no one can play that, that uh, sort of off of uh, feed by Frankenstein. The, the only two people that can really play the, that sort of solo off each other is you and Steve. I mean, there's just no doubt that, that, that that's the, two of you and and we we do our best to come up with make it our own but we always try and put that spirit of that time in so thank you for that for years you oh know? you're welcome you know? <laughs> so i'm wondering if that's the the if that is one of those 40 uh album releases and i don't think it is i don't think your appearances are are of of, of the of, of the almost 40 albums that you've had in the release in the 10 million sales um, um yeah. I, I i really don't think it is because folks you You've done so much of this stuff on your own, whether it's with solo albums or, or, or some of the bands that you've done, but it's mostly been solo records. Um, the newest yeah, one. Yeah, so solo records, yeah. The newest one is Shape Shifting. And um, 
I wanted to talk a little bit about that because you put that out this mm-hmm. year, but at the same time, you've actually released something for the fans on Satriani.com, which we're going to talk about and give you when we when we put out your socials and stuff. But you put out a new uh, sort of concept called uh, Stripped X3, which has the backing tracks of shape-shifting, Black Swans and Wormhole Wizards, and Is There Love in Space. So three different albums, three different complete eras, but... Yeah, Guys, yeah. if you haven't gone on to Satriani.com to check this out, whether you're a guitarist and you just want to you want to hear these backing tracks, which is coming something special and play over it yourself, or you just want to appreciate the people that appreciate Joe, you got to go check out uh, mm-hmm. this album. So tell us about both uh, Shape Shifting and this new Striped uh, X3. So, yeah, it's, you know, it goes back to... Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Steve, Steve, I, uh, my good buddy, um, you know, decided to put out the, the Vi, uh, jewel box and he started putting the backing tracks out. And I always joked with him that I was going to replace all the melodies and solos and release the album as a Joe Satriani record. <laughs> but, uh, so I had this feeling like, well, I, you know, this, it costs so much money to actually create the backing tracks, that's where you spend most of the time and money is, you know, hiring all these musicians and the studio and everything. And the melody and solo bits go on just as everyone leaves and, and you're running out of money, you know? Right. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> kind of like making I, a movie. I thought, why would I always comes last and when you're making a movie. It's yeah, like so, <laughs> why would I be giving these things away? But then I, I started to think, no, this is totally different. I, I, I need, after I got, o- got over the, the, you know, my conceptual problem of handing over to the fans these, these uh, precious backing tracks, you know, yeah. uh, that I practice to all the time, you know, when I'm getting ready for a tour, I got real excited about putting them together. And as you noted, you know, just sort of showing the fans the three different eras and, and it illustrates how differently I approach each record. Um, and I, I wanted them somehow to relate to each other, but at the same time, I did want to pick three that were wildly different in terms of where they were recorded, who was on the record, uh, who was helping me produce, um, all that kind of stuff. And maybe conceptually what I was thinking about at the time in terms of the writing, um, the concept for getting other people to play on it was really the brainchild of my webmaster at Chime Interactive, John Luini. And he kind of surprised me with this idea by saying, hey, we've asked, you know, Steve Vai and Phil Campbell and Phil Collin, Bumblefoot yeah. and Laurie and okay. all these people to come and just play whatever they want. In other words, don't try to play Joe, just do whatever you want. Like it's a, it's a rehearsal backing track or something. Yeah. And what we've been getting has been so cool because you know, even like, of course, you can't do anything that Steve does because he's just like a wizard. He just, yeah. whatever he touches, he makes it his own thing, you know. Uh, but then there are the, these younger players uh, like like Alyssa and, Alyssa and Joshua. Day, and, they, and you had Bumblefoot on it as well, I saw. You know, they the stuff that they do, I'll never be able to do. So it was <laughs> just so cool to see them like extrapolate, you know, on these, uh, these simple structures and and show me you know like there's so much more you can do and that's really what it illustrates what these backing tracks are good for really is 
for exploration, you know. In, well, in you got to go check it out, folks, because it's it's on Satriani.com. I checked out a bunch of these uh, clips because you can get a real nice taste of it. You can see Phil Collin uh, playing from Def Leppard, uh, as well as all the other names. Even, even some, uh, I want to say old schoolers, because I love Sammy, but Sammy gets a taste on it, too, as well. Sammy gets on, on the action. And uh, this yeah. is Striped X3. And, and I think the way you packaged it on your site, again, going back to that business mindset is really smart because oh, yeah. you I should show you have some of that right? because well for, that's the thing all, I wanted to talk about yeah shown it yeah that's so here's amazing. the here's the case right you snap it open this is just a, a mock-up you know but and then you get the guitar itself oh that's that's a you know? that's a small Joe you know? Satriani uh signature yeah. series but it's not folks it it's your it's your USB <laughs> stick that has the entire right. albums all on it um included with original liner notes and credits and it's all packaged within a replica Joe Satriani Ibanez guitar uh in a custom yeah. case so that's the first time people have seen it in the flesh from you that's right it. i love it that's our exclusive yeah, i think they wanted me to make a like a little uh, infomercial about it but obviously i <laughs> this have is no it. skill at this <laughs> think of us as like the the infomercial of rock and roll right now because uh that's uh, that's quite awesome that they that you have that and uh again it goes back to uh you know that business mindset where I have this segment in the podcast where I say taking care of business because you've always had this uh, good sense of, uh, you know, how to make money in the music business. That's why you've been able to be so successful. You founded G3 in 1995. You know, I, I, <laughs> That's right, yeah. I, I did not know that. Uh, I mean, I knew that I remember the first G3 coming out with Steve Vai and Eric Johnson and yourself, but you've been able to turn it into a franchise. And what was the idea behind that? Oh, I was lonely. Uh, <laughs> it was so funny. Uh, I came back in the middle of the, the 95 tour uh, in support of the eponymous release, Joe Satriani in 95. And I said, you know, everything's great touring, packed houses, lots of work. I got artistic freedom. I said, but when do I get to hang out with my friends? I said, every time I call Steve, I, I'm in New York. He's in Australia. If I call Luke at there, he's in LA. I'm in London. <laughs> I said, I never hang out. And I, I said, you know, when I was a kid, I thought when I'm a rock star, I'm just going to be hanging out with all the guitar <laughs> players and we're just going to be having fun, partying, trading licks. And, and of course it was nothing like that. It was, it was, I was just on my own. I was on a bus every night or in a hotel room. And you know so who does that, down. Joe, you know, who does that, all that hanging out and all that, that camaraderie drummers. <laughs> ah, that's right. <laughs> drummers always do it, you know, damn it. <laughs> they do. They're, they're very social. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it took about three hours uh, at the Bill Graham office there, but we finally came up with an idea uh, the difficulty was, of course, is that you can come up with a great idea, like 25 guitars in one night, but try to find a venue that you can rent, uh, you know, right. uh, that, that can hold that many guitar players. And then if you've got all those guitar players and you've got to shove them into 7 to 11, which is really like 7.30 to 10.45, because that's the curfew. Right. Uh, it, people out there watching this may not know, but the artist rents the venue for the evening. That's kind of like what it is. And they have rules which means you pull in now, you do your show, and then you get out. You got a <laughs> curfew. Yeah, everyone knows about yeah. the curfew that, that Axl Rose yeah. breaks every single night. But yeah, <laughs> we don't. And it's, 
It's very expensive, and you and you know unless you're a superstar act as selling forty thousand tickets, uh, you don't want to break that curfew, and you don't want to incur any overage, especially if you're playing in a union place in New York City. Oh my god! You know it yeah, makes yeah. the whole tour insolvent, right? So we whittled it down, and we thought, well, we also won't be able to invite people if we say, hey, would you like to join the tour and play for seven minutes? No one's going to say yes. Everyone, every artist is going to want to play whatever it is their set is to promote their new album uh, and, and to feel confident that they can reach their fans and give them the show they deserve. So we had to figure out what is the number of artists uh, that would translate to a long enough set for each artist so that they all feel like they had a chance to deliver their goods to their fans. And three was the magic number. And so that's why we went with that. Um, and it seems to have actually, Brigitte. yeah, it mm-hmm. seems to actually have been uh, to to, to uh, transcend into other tours because a lot of guitar tours that have been in, in this, under the same business model have that magic number of three. I think you know I, I've actually done yeah. a tour called Planet Acts where it was three acts, three singer guitar players, mm-hmm. you know, guitar players, singer songwriters that that did a, a tour and everyone did a, a little bit of a set. So I think three is that magic number for it that you. It is, yeah. Everybody can do, you know, let's say on the average 50 minutes with enough. changeover. Yeah. And then there's enough time at the end for all three artists to, to jam, jam for yeah, yeah. a half hour at the end of the night. That's a great and, shot. Uh, oh, it's so, it's so thrilling for me to stand next to these just incredible musicians every night and hanging out all day backstage, watching people practice. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't know when we walk off stage, the first thing we do is turn to each other and say, how did you do that? Like, <laughs> that was so awesome when that happened. Wasn't that cool? We should do that longer. I mean, we're just like little kids who just got off a high school stage or no something doubt. like that. Yeah. It yeah. is a great sense of uh, camaraderie and every, and it's, it's so unique because most of the time we're off on our own, just doing our set, you know, night after night, city after city. It's the only opportunity where, uh, on a set schedule, guitar players get to really, you know, trade and Hang. share yeah. and, it, and improvise because we don't play each other's music. We're not trying to promote a single. We're actually playing classic music to celebrate the guitar with the audience. And I, and I think that's the that's the magic element that just sort of disarms the performers and the audience and everybody can really have a great time. Well, thank you, Joe, for coming up with that format because it actually has been successful with a multitude of different types of tours, man. So good on you on that. So (laughs) I think it's time that we move on because at this point we say, let the people speak, but this time it's let the people (laughs) speak secret sauce style because it is a secret sauce episode folks. And, um, this is where we actually get, uh, people that uh, have been following you, watching you, um, and want to actually be on screen with you to ask you a question. Uh, I'd say, I would say face to face, but I'll say screen face to screen face. So we'll, <laughs> we'll bring up Joey first and um, we'll have him ask a question for you. I will disappear for a little while, but uh, Joey, do you want to ask a question to Joe? And Joey, meet Joe. Joe, meet Joey. Hey, hey. Joey. How you doing, Joey? Doing well. So I've Joe, I've been immersed the last week in a, in a madness of listening to every single solo album from the beginning. Wow. And so I was trying to understand the evolution, right? Because instrumental music, it seems it's 
it's very different from normal rock music where you have the vocalist. And it's been a long time since you recorded um, under the solo name um, a song with vocals, like Flying in a Blue Dream. And you abandoned that at some point. So I wanted to... I wanted to understand that motivation because there must have been a point in time when you decided there is this this genre of clean guitar music that doesn't need vocals and you you created it and you sort of established it. So would would love to hear if that was a business decision, if it was something that you just wanted to do creatively. I'm sure you had great reasons behind it. Yeah, well, I I guess the the explanation has to do with the fact that I came into the instrumental uh, angle by accident. Um, I was in a band uh, called The Squares where I was like the second lead vocalist. I've never really been a real singer. I, I can vocalize, but my lead singer, Andy Milton, he was like a gifted real singer, you know, like Sammy Hagar. They're just a special type. And uh, so it was always a bit difficult for me to, to step up to the mic and sing. I was making instrumental records for myself uh, when Steve insisted on on uh, connecting me with Cliff Coltrane at Relativity, I thought it was the longest of long shots ever. But all of a sudden, I had a hit record. I'm I'm playing with Mick Jagger, and people want me to do more of it. And I thought, well, this is great fun, and I don't have to sing. So <laughs> I, I felt kind of relieved. But um, uh, my manager, Mick Brigden, said something to me one day when I was recording uh, the Flying in a Blue Dream album, he said, if you've got something to say, then step up to the mic and, and sing it, you know. But if you don't, don't feel pressured that you need to sing for some sort of music business reason. And and that was the best advice I got. So I looked and I thought, well, do I really want to sing a song like I Believe and Big Bad Moon and Ride? And I really felt compelled to do that. I had a good reason to do that. And so sometimes I I approached it like, I think my audience knows I'm singing in character. I'm not trying to be a lead singer. Uh, everybody knows I'm not a lead singer. So I'm doing this just to make the album more interesting, to broaden the the canvas for me to play guitar on because the guitar playing that I could play on a song like Strange uh, or I Believe, very different than if it was an instrumental. I'd have to kind of rein it in a little bit more. But having vocals to bounce off of gives you an extra freedom, I think, uh, to, to express yourself. Um, so I never thought that the vocals would ever like open, uh, a new door commercially for me because, um, over and over again, I get reminded that I'm not a singer. And I can tell you this one story that was just so perfect. We're recording the first chicken foot record and we did a lot of background vocals together. And one day we're, we're recording at George Lucas's studio and we go out there to sing around one microphone and we do one take and uh engineer comes on the headphone and says okay Sammy could you step back about three feet okay and then and Joe could you step up about two feet right and anyway long story short by the time we get the balance right I'm like this close to the microphone. <laughs> Sammy's like back there. <laughs> you know, Chad is like three feet behind me. Mike, of course, is like in the other room. I mean, this goes to show you that real singers have a way of projecting mm. and I don't. <laughs> and, it, and it was a, we were cracking up so much. We could barely get the part recorded because it was just so funny how 
small my voice actually was compared to Sammy. You know, we had to put him like way back there. So yeah. uh, I always remind myself uh, when I when someone asks me to sing, I go, oh, no, come on. Let's forget about it. <laughs> That's yeah. funny, man. So, Joe, for me, it was a very freeing experience to to listen to um, to vocal free instrumental guitar music when I when I found yeah. in 1992 the Extremist album that became yeah. a complete game changer for me. So I then went back wow. and found the other albums, but it it always stood out besides the sometimes overwhelming personality of a voice. It sometimes hijacks the song. And that's just yeah. not possible if it's instrumental. So I, I truly enjoyed that. Thank you for that. Cool. Well, you're very welcome. And you you illustrate a very good point. The uh, instrumental music really gives freedom to the listener to put their own story into the music. And that's why it's always been, uh, for as long as history records people making music, instrumental music has been a driving force uh, in all societies around the world. It's It's a big deal. Um, it doesn't work as well with this visual medium, you know, that we're in right now where it's all about people looking into the camera and singing, you know, um, <laughs> and talking and, 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 and doing whatever. But um, it, it won't go away because of that thing that you mentioned. It, it allows people to put their own story into the music and it becomes their own that way. So. Well, Thank been, you for li liking that record. I put a lot a of work into that album. <laughs> That's cool. You've been a pioneer in obviously the whole genre of guitar-driven solo albums as well. So thank you, Joey, for asking that hey, question. I'm, I'm going to actually... Joey. Nice to meet you. See you, nice man. See you. Have a good one. So um, that's getting the hook. Actually, our producer gives him the hook, and that's that's Vic. Uh. <laughs> that's Vic's hook right there. But we're we're gonna have a, a um, Nick come up real quick and ask a question, and hopefully it'll be as uh, as good of a question as that. I have no pressure on you, Nick, to come up with a good question now because uh, Joey came up with such a good one. But how you doing, Nick? Nice to see you, bud. And I'm doing great, Ron. Great to see you, Joe. Nice to meet you, man. Hey, nice huge fan since I saw you back in the late 80s on the Surfing with the Alien tour. Wow. You played Fort Wayne. It was a great show. Wow. But cool. my question was, what was the most what was the most difficult aspect of making that Surfing with the Alien album as far as musically? Oh, uh, the album was made on such a small budget. The original budget was $13,000. And, you know, these records were made wow. analog. So we had to go to a studio and rent time. It's not like mm -hmm. working with your laptop at home or something. So uh, it, it's expensive, uh, the, the old way of making records. Um, the, the budget had to be eventually doubled uh, and more. I think we eventually spent 29 grand of actual cash. But there was another... I'd say 15 grand that was all done uh, really bartering. I did a lot of sessions uh, for Sandy Perlman and Blue Oyster Cult in the same studio room where we would uh, take over and record a solo or rhythm part after I'd spent six hours working for uh, Blue Oyster Cult repairing guitar parts. Um, the, the studio owner, Michael Ward also, um, would hire me for sessions and would, you know, they would pay me in studio time. So I'd work for either, uh, Michael or Sandy. And if I worked for three hours, they'd give me three hours studio time. And then John and I would run in like between midnight and 8 a.m. or something. And we use that bartered studio time to, you know, do the sound effects on circles or, you know, the, the solo on lords of karma or whatever we had to do so everything was done uh under duress uh 
the other day I was telling a story about the the melody and the, that that goes all the way through the the title track "Surfing with the Alien" and ends the song, the whammy bar and the wah wah pedal. You have to imagine I had an afternoon to do that. I never I hadn't used my wah wah pedal for years. I brought it to the studio that day. I plug it in. I tell John, let's just try something different. We we get a sound. We realize it's four o'clock. There's guys standing at the door, literally with their arms folded, looking at us like, hey, man, you know, it's <laughs> ours now. You get out of here. And we're like, "Can I, let me just do one pass, you know, so I can get this down. And I recorded that take while these people are looking at me, trying to get me to get out of the studio right <laughs> after that the eventide 949 or 911 whatever breaks we could never reconstruct the sound so that wound up on the album and and that's kind of like how the whole album was put together um lots of twists and turns when we mastered the record the first time we found out that the stereo bus at the studio was misaligned so we went back and we made the studio give us free studio time to remix side one. <laughs> this oh, is wow. crazy stuff, you know, wow. and the, all this time relativity is screaming at me because I'm way over budget and that took too much time, but actually we didn't, we would just, we couldn't get into the studio. We never had lockout time. So it was just three hours on Monday and we wait till Friday and we do four hours and we'll wait till next Thursday and we do two hours. So, um, you know, I got to say wonderful times, but at the time, very stressful, extremely stressful. And uh, so I can imagine when you say that there was, was challenging aspects. Yeah. When you, when you, <laughs> when you say there's a few challenging aspects of surfing with the alien, that was actually a perfect question because it seems to be like there was many. Well, it was a fan. It was a fantastic album and it was well worth it. Thank you. Um, at least from the from the fan standpoint, love it. Love all your work, man. Well, Appreciate it. Great meeting I, you. I am uh, very grateful that you love the record, that you listened to it. Uh, John Cunaberti, my my good friend and engineer, uh, it was such a driving force in in helping me get that record done. He was my co-producer, and and he sat there with me and had to work out all these issues as they were flying at us so uh kudos to john as people well. don't really so realize nice the story behind the story of of these albums and i'm glad yeah. we're you're able to share it with us here thanks nick thanks for coming on and asking that question that's amazing man see ya thanks nick Bye. hey well dude i'm telling you that's uh I didn't know that story. I, I mean, thank you. Thank you for refreshing our memory with that. I mean, uh, it, it, because it does, there are so many stories behind the story when you, when you think about an album and what it goes to making it. And I wish everything was documented because back in those days, there wasn't all these social medias and, you know, platforms to you would have just maybe made that an insta story during back in those days like oh hey we're getting kicked out of our studio but now you're able to share it with us right now i think that's really awesome um, um we have one more question if you want for okay. uh for adam yeah. to come up and uh uh adam do you want to come up and ask a question and uh this is adam and hey, adam, hey, adam meet hey, joe joe meet adam i'll go off all right <laughs> <laughs> great to meet you and uh, great conversation so far. Thank you for this. Um, so I want to ask you about creativity. Um, so I'm I'm a non-musician and, and for someone like me, it's very difficult to uh, fully imagine 
how a new and original piece of music uh, really comes into existence. And I know that uh, for some artists, they describe the experience of creativity, the subjective experience, as one of having inspiration and, and um, in a way that seems kind of out of, out of their control and difficult to explain. Uh, whereas for others, um, it seems like they have a reliable process that allows them to create innovative material seemingly uh, in some cases on demand. And uh, so I wanted to ask you about your process. What, what is creativity like and, and what, is your, what is your process like in writing music? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great, very deep question. Um, the one that I don't have a definitive answer for because like most artists, I'm uh, almost superstitious about looking at, looking at it. You know, it's like, I, I almost don't wanna know I don't want to look under the hood to see what's going on that creates that fantastic uh, wealth of creativity. I've been blessed with being very prolific and uh, I don't want to jinx it <laughs> by looking, looking at it too closely, but I can say um, you, you hit on two points that were really interesting. Um, number one, I, I'm just a human being like you. So, uh, you know, I'm just filled with emotions and questions. It's a, being alive is it's it's visceral it's intellectual it's spiritual it's emotional and there isn't enough time in the day to re-express it into music but i focus on things sometimes they're so big uh it, i can't help myself uh from expressing it artistically you know like losing a loved one uh or falling in love or or you know experiencing great joy or happiness um Sometimes uh, I use my imagination to take a small feeling and blow it out of proportion. Uh, the first time that really worked for me was um, when uh, going back many years, my wife called me uh, and she said, you know what? I'm sorry. I got to work late. Uh, I, I won't be back for dinner. And it was just one of those normal things like, yeah, no problem. And, and then I thought I'm sitting there with my guitar and I'm thinking, you know, what if that, scenario was really bad what would i what what would happen if i amplified that whole thing uh what if the phone call was more intense and what if my loneliness was more intense how would that sound and i knew i was just playing you know with it i was just making it up but i put it towards the guitar and i came up with a song called the crush of love and it became a very important song uh on on for my career at the time, even though it had no album, it was really funny. It came in between uh, two albums, um, but it was proof that you know there's part of who you are truthfully, and that and that part that you've developed, in other words, the musician part, can come together, and one can help the other or influence the other at times. Um, I've had to. And to address your other question, I've had to be able to turn things on before mm -hmm. um, because we had to do it. Like being in the studio with Chickenfoot, there's a lot of writing that would happen right at the moment where you're just looking at each other and they want to record mm -hmm. and you just have to come up with stuff uh, at the moment. I think one of the great things about that is that those moments uh, of necessity bring out the talent that you've been working on your whole life. Uh, we, we earlier in, in this interview, we talked about being prepared for good luck and that's kind of like what it is. If mm -hmm. you do all the hard work, 
and just catalog it back there, there'll be that one day where Sammy Hagar will say, I got this song, I got this chord and this chord, but where do I go with it? And you go, I can run with that idea. I've got all this stuff that's sitting here waiting to be utilized. And you, you turn it on, you bring it out. You, you have to have the spirit in you. You have to love music, want to do it. You have to love collaboration. Uh, I happen to love that. I really like working with people. I like getting ideas from other people uh, and, and working with them. So um, that winds up being a source of positive energy during those moments where you have to turn it on, you know. Um, yeah. Overall, I, the creative experience really surprises me. Uh, yesterday I was, uh, I was taking a break working on a session and I played a bunch of demos that I had written about, um, about a month ago and sent off to my buddies in the band. And I marveled at the intensity of each one of the songs because I'd sort of forgotten the story behind it. Uh, enough time had passed where I'd been working on some other music and I got to listen to that and I thought, wow what made me feel that way so intensely that I would write that song. And, and I was, uh, uh, I, I thank the universe, you know, for like gifting me that because I had this beautiful gem of a representation of that feeling, that moment. And uh, I, I wish I could explain it better, but I, I'm in awe of it. Uh, you know, creativity. It's, it's my whole life. It, my passion in life is creativity and, and uh, I wish I could bottle it and, uh, give it away for free. <laughs> but I think you've answered it. I think you've answered it like as eloquently as you can. And Adam, that's a great question. And, and I'm glad that I've got that insight again. I'm going to be using the rewind button on a lot of this podcast for myself, you know, because it's been so inspiring, but thank you very much, Adam. Thank you. It's a great answer. Thank you. See you, man. Wow, man. I, I you know what, during your last couple questions with, with our guests, I've, I've changed. You're not a guitar teacher. You're a sensei. Okay. If you, you just might want to start growing that big, long white beard right now. So you can be yeah. the guitar sensei. I used to have a fake one that I could put on like when I talked to John Petrucci on FaceTime. Don't have it around here. That's funny. Well, I mean, I would love to talk all day, but we're going to wrap things up just a little bit. I know you have a busy schedule, but um, I mean, because I wanted, you know, I'm a gear geek and I would love to talk about, I know you still have, uh, you know, your signature series, uh, JS Ibanez's that are out and, and you yeah. have your JS, uh, you have your uh, signature Marshalls. Um, I'm not sure yeah. if, uh, is, is, is PV still in the mix right now or what, what are the amps of choice that you are using these days with guitars well yeah outside of my relationship with ibanez i'm a free agent when it comes to pedals and and amps and stuff like that um my favorite amp of all time uh is my jvm it's over here you can't really see it can you is it the there one? it is oh, on top i like of the it yeah the, 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 look at that is that a sorry. jvm but that's not the blue tolex that doesn't have the the joe satriani bc i know your blue tolex no, one but I, that, that one's safely uh wrapped up because it looks so beautiful <laughs> but this one's been on the road and and uh you know i've been using that on the 5150 to do a lot of recording um i've got the waza tae here which is really cool use it together with the Axio. Um, I just put out something with uh, Amplitude, uh, a whole suite of sounds, uh, which has been so much fun. We're just about to release a song, actually, really? which is like a freaky demo where 
I kind of plagiarized myself for about four <laughs> minutes. <laughs> and I just sort of like four bars of this, four bars of that, you know. Um, it really, it was a lot of fun doing it and just using, you know, the, the laptop and the, and the, the Axio and, and the Amplitube uh, Joe Satriani suite. It, it was fun. But I love my 5150, the old one. Uh, like I said, that my JVM signature, they don't actually make it anymore, but uh, I've got a stash of them and I just love playing that amp. I just Nicely really done. like it. I've, I've got some old amps, uh, old Marshalls. I love the new Fenders, uh, all the small uh, combos, um, just great. They're hand-wired series and their um, custom series, fantastic in the studio. Uh, Princeton's, Deluxe's, all, all that stuff, uh, really fantastic. Um, pedals, I've got so many pedals you can't even, I mean, it looks really clean <laughs> this way. But if you can see down there, you'd be like, where do I walk? You know, there's just like pedals everywhere. I love it. But um, is there, is, there's not a phase shifter down there, is there? Like we talked about earlier. No there phase. is. <laughs> I, I love, you know, you know, I'm a big fan of Eddie Van Halen. And, yeah. uh, With and, the phase and 90, so, right? Wasn't that the, the, the original one was that phase? Really, nine? really great. Yeah. I mean, that's how, you know, the first single from Shapeshifting was a song called 1980. And that was all about just me being so excited about playing guitar again uh, in a rock band. And the fact that there was somebody like Eddie that came along and kind of reinvented and reinvigorated playing aggressive guitar. And, you know, he's just he's a master, you know, and and so uh I thought it was a tip of the hat to plug in that pedal. I hadn't planned on it, but I was sitting here recording that song and I thought there's the pedal. I thought, well, of course, you know, were you like me? Did you, because kids today don't realize how lucky they are with YouTube to have a speed control already on the player to have everything that you can break down track by track. But were you like me? Did you actually ruin a bunch of copies of Van Halen one trying to learn eruption? Because I, I used to do it with the, with the needle on the thing and it's, I tried to get it, but then I would slow yeah. it down to, to, you know, not 40, not 33. I'd slow it down <laughs> to 16 speed, but that wouldn't work. I mean, did you try and learn records, uh, try and learn the songs? I had to. I mean, I was teaching guitar from late 78 uh, to 80 to early 88. Kirk Hammett was my last lesson in January of 88. And for 10 years, I had to show all those young kids, every, from Ingve to Eddie Van Halen, you know, Michael Shanker, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Hendrix, all of it. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I just had to learn how everybody did everything, but and you mentioned you something truth. about ear training. Ear training so important. It's what I I try to give yeah. my students all the time as well. You know, it's always ear training. I, I have to tell you this because it, it really, it really explains the way I feel about the the way Eddie played and what it meant. Which is, this goes back maybe two years. I'm sitting at a meet and greet with. Uh, Phil Collin and John Petrucci, right? And they play music while we're meeting everybody. So we're signing stuff, meeting, we're talking about stuff. And, you know, eruption comes on. And at one point, we're just, John and I are just like stunned. Once again, since we were really young, we're yeah. just stunned once again. And we look at each other and we go, is that the most amazing like feeling ever? And of course, we know how to play it inside out. We can play it in every key and whatever, but that's not the point. The point is, doing as it. a finished piece of music, it's the most beautiful expression yeah. from somebody who just had a vision and tried everything they could and put everything they had into making something 
really unique. And the fact that he did it is so important and that the sound of it, you can feel there's some sort of weird magic voodoo in that thing that's got nothing to do with the finger technique. It's just Eddie, you know what I mean? And and to this day, just sitting there in a professional setting, you know, John and I, again, you know, our, we hear it in our hearts <laughs> are going, go, 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 go. And we'd like, we can't, we can't sign stuff. We can't shake hands. We have to wait till he's finished. We got to listen to the whole thing, you know. And Phil is there. We look at Phil and he's the same thing. We're just like. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you after I sign off today on this podcast, I will go listen to that because I'm excited to hear it. I will also go listen to the Squares album now that I know it's on Spotify is great. And of course, anybody that's in the chat right now should go check out Satriani.com. In fact, it's time for you to give out your socials if you can, uh, Joe, because um, a lot of people are... are probably listening on Apple and Spotify and we thank you for that. But if you want to see it, uh, you could see the, the handles right there. But Joe, if you want to uh, tell them out for the people, how to get in touch with you and find out more. Yeah. The, the best place, if you just type in my name, it'll come at will come up first. And then of course you'll see everything for uh, the socials. Funny. The funniest one is Twitter, right? Because I, I signed on without calling my, uh, my webmaster many years ago. And I just, you know, I was I was thinking funny, something funny. So I put chicken foot Joe. Uh, as people know, trying to get your real name and that blue check next to something can be a bit of a, <laughs> a thing. Uh, Years. So, but anyway, there is no problem finding embarrassing photos of me and everything else on the internet. So <laughs> unfortunately, it's an open book. So yes, go to Instagram, uh, go to Twitter, go to Spotify, That's go to Facebook, uh, Satriani.com can direct you to all of that. Um, and thank you if you do. There you go. Well, you know what? The one last thing I have for you is a little thing that Alice Cooper says. He says, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. All right. Yeah. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So I just have a quick couple things to find out if they were fact or fiction that we came up with. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, um, I think you kind of almost answered the first one. Uh, 1986, did you almost go broke recording your debut album, Not of This Earth? Yes. Okay, so that is a fact. Yeah. That is a this fact. Is, a, is this a yes, no kind of thing? <laughs> it was just fact or fiction uh, because, oh. and, and you did sort of, uh, you did sort of play it. A follow-up question to that is a uh, uh, 1987's uh, Surfing with the Alien was based on a real-life experience? No. Okay. Um, it was, a, it was, okay. <laughs> so, Surfing with the Alien is a title of a song I just thought in my head. I was just thinking, like, I love science fiction, and I thought, how come when the aliens show up, it's always they want to eat us, they want to cook us, they want our water, they want to blow up the planet. I said, what if they come and they just want to have fun? So what would you do? And I thought, oh, what if I said, hey, you want to go surfing? That's a lot of fun if you're a human. And the alien says, yeah. So I thought, okay, I'm going to write a song that's about that, Surfing with the Alien. It was just one of those funny little daydreams <laughs> that I focused on, you know? So, but that wasn't the title of the album. The album was supposed to be called Lords of Karma. And in the summer before the, the record gets released, it was released in October of, of 87. I did my first interview and the British journalist at the end said, love the album, great work, hate the title. Wow. And 
And, you know, he said, I don't understand why guitarists always go into some sort of Indian spiritual thing. when it, And I didn't know what, why he was upset. But after I hung up, I called the record company and I said, can we change the title? <laughs> and they said, well, yeah, we haven't pressed anything yet. So I looked at the at the song list and I said, okay, surfing with the alien, everyone will know I have a sense of humor and I'm not taking myself seriously. Can we just call it that? And so I'm, wow, I'm talking that to one Jim little Kowalski. thing. You have you have an uptight British journalist to thank for the success yes. of your entire career. No, it didn't go that far. But so they, still. They, here's the, here's the totally random fact about this whole conversation. The guy I'm talking to at the record company is production manager Jim Kozlowski, who's like six foot four. He's got long platinum blonde hair. He used to work at uh, radio in Boston, and he says to me, "Surfing with the alien." great idea. We should put my namesake on the cover. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, the Silver Surfer. That's what they used to call me on on uh, Boston ra was radio it a, station. That was a comic strip station. or something too, right? Or the yes, right. I didn't know that because my parents never allowed me to read comic books, right? Okay. So I said to him, look, Jim, I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, the Silver Surfer, he goes, I'll send you uh, a copy of the, you know, so you can see this thing. Now, you should know, in my contract, I had stipulated no negative Im images, violent images, anything on any of my album covers. It was something that I was adamant about because Relativity and Combat were doing great business with some of the most disgusting-looking oh. album covers yeah, yeah, I'd ever done in my life, right? Anyway, I got to make this story short, I know. So he Go sends ahead. me the first two issues of the 1968 comic, uh, The Silver Surfer. Of course, I love... Norrin Rad, the Silver Surfer, the fact that he's metaphysically tortured and the love story, the whole thing. And I thought, well, that's really great, but how are we going to get that? And he goes, I know the guys at Marvel, their office is right down the block from my apartment. So he lives in Manhattan. So he goes down there after work. He says, I got an instrumental artist. We'd like to use some artwork. And they said, anything, help, because the, the Silver Surfer was kind of dead in the water as a as a character. This is before the Marvel movies yeah, yeah, yeah. started up, right? So we we were able to get for I think $5,000 for 20 years a license to use the real artwork from uh the very first issue where the Silver Surfer is born out of the hand of Galactica. So um that's how that happened. It was all because of that one interview. And now you're set because you know that Marvel's going to come. They're going to run out of characters at one point. So Silver Surfer is going to be a new Marvel character. And of course, it's probably you're going to have all the music in that. You're set. Well, no, it didn't work out that way at all. As a matter of fact, decade after decade, they put the screws on so oh, bad. Man. And last, last year, they finally came and made an offer that I could not accept it was so beyond servitude and the amount of money they wanted was just ridiculous so they forced me to stop using the artwork and we had to come up with our own artwork so we reissued the album with new artwork last year and we included a double uh vinyl package with the backing tracks and that was the beginning of me of releasing home. backing tracks which ties into the stripped uh times yeah. three re uh, release that yeah. we're, we're doing now so yeah, it's really weird because this is still, you know, the whole thing about the silver guitar and and it all you know, goes back to that theme. 
Yeah, <laughs> it's still a thing. It's so weird well, that it happened to me. You know, it's five so grand funny. was well spent, and remember, it was five grand that you owed on that credit card for the very first album as well. So there, that's go. pretty funny, isn't it? <laughs> last factor fiction. Last, let never let the truth get in the way of story. You played all the guitars on the debut Crowded House album. Oh my God, no! Uh, so that's uh, fiction. Fiction, but. Part I sang, sang backup vocals on six songs on Crowded House's debut album. Uh, the producer, Mitchell Froome, uh, was considering producing the squares at the time. Uh, and when he got the job to produce Crowded House, he called Andy Milton, the squares lead singer, and myself and said, I'd love to get you two guys to come down to L.A. and sing backup with the band because you guys have a unique blend and no one's heard it before yet. Crowded House is like such a, a great pros. debut record. Does such a great yeah, record. Wonderful. And and uh my good friend Andy Milton, not with us anymore, but his voice is so beautiful and it's so mm. obvious on that album. He he basically sang with Neil and harmonized and doubled his parts. I sang with the drummer, also uh, unfortunately not with us anymore. Uh, our, our range was similarly small. <laughs> we both had. I think he sang better than I did. He didn't. But really no like guitars. So 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 it's fiction on the guitars. But you but your voice fiction. was featured on there. And there you go. I, it it is in fact the only time I have ever been paid to sing. <laughs> On somebody else's record, <laughs> you got paid for Chicken Foot, didn't you? You, you, you well, got paid you for know, going way up on the mic really and sing, getting paid. Singing. You know, because we 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 financed those records ourselves, so we were our own boss. So, yeah, but that was the only time I got hired as a singer. You know what I mean? And got and got paid and scale, you know, double scale, triple scale, scale, whatever it was at the time. Anything was okay. Dinner would have been fine. Uh, you know, but I, you know what? I try to bring one thing that perhaps uh, Joe Satriani fans didn't know before. And I think that might be the one thing that uh, you did <laughs> sing on the Crowded House album, which is a great album. But the Squares album, is a, album. is a great album as well. So you should go check out that and go check out Satriani.com so you can uh, get the new shape-shifting record as well as strip times three so we've been hanging out folks with joe satriani i finally said the name right i'm getting the east coast <laughs> vibe of it it's been nothing but inspirational hang with you as you, as you can see halfway through your questions i got i, I grabbed my les paul and uh, i'm like i'm like i'm gonna excellent. go play and listen to some music today i'm sure you're gonna do the same because you're in your music room so yep Thanks enough. <laughs> Thank you so much, Joe, for being on. And thanks for everybody for coming on this uh, secret sauce episode of In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. And uh, Joe, any parting words that you might like to have to your fans? Well, thank first of all, thank you for having me on the show. The show is really great. I love the format. It's really nice that you give everybody uh, a lot of room to tell their stories. I apologize if my answers are a bit long-winded. Not at all. No, that's uh, what we want. Long form, <laughs> man. That was great. And so many things that I think people didn't uh, hear in other places, they got to hear, you know, today. I, I didn't know a lot of these stories and I did my research on this. So it was great talking with you. Hopefully we can do it again. Yes, yes, please do. Please invite me back. I'll, I'll be ready for you. All right, guys. Well, until next time, Joe Satriani, Ryan Roxy, live in the trenches, uh, secret sauce episodes. We'll see you next time. Enjoy the ride. Yeah. Everybody. yeah. yeah. In the trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello.